text for this morning's sermon is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Father, as we come to your word now and we look at the great privilege uh, we have as born-again believers to carry your word to the ends of the earth, Father, I pray that you would uh, give us confidence and courage that doesn't come from our flesh, but comes from uh, the power of the Spirit that lives within us. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would convict us, but that uh, we would be encouraged uh, to share the gospel with our family and our friends. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's going to be a little different uh, this morning. I had a choice to either recycle one of the messages from camp or to uh, continue on in Luke, and I decided that uh, I was going to recycle the last message from camp. Uh, it's a little bit different. Those of you who are at camp, it, I think it's, you could hear this every day. And it's the gospel, and, and it's good for us. So uh, today's message is going to be a little more uh, teaching, feel a little more like teaching than preaching. Although, it seems like I always end up preaching, no matter what we're talking about. So uh, the first question is this, am I prepared to share the gospel? Uh, if you're honest there's probably some anxiety about whether if the Lord gave you an opportunity today, it was on your plate to share the gospel, whether or not you would feel confident and comfortable in being able to do that. And, and for me, as a pastor, someone who's in God's word every day, I still like to have go-to, in the moment, you can lose your words, you can lose your thoughts, and so it's helpful uh, to uh, have a plan as to how uh, you might share the gospel. The theme verse for camp this week was Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk 
in them. So not only has God elected you before the foundation of the earth, if you're a Christian, but he's also chosen beforehand works for you to walk in. He didn't, he didn't just save you and say, well, let's see if this one turns out into something. But he had a plan to use you for good works. Christ doesn't just save us so that we don't go to hell. But in the meantime, until Christ returns or we go there, he has works for us. Because we're saved, not to earn our salvation, but because we're saved, uh, there's works. And, and this, uh, we're his workmanship in the new birth. He's the one that created us. Uh, what Scott just read, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Though this passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God. We're his workmanship. So when we think in a moment about sharing the gospel and you're going to say, yeah, but look at all my inadequacies. Look at, well, were you created by God in Christ Jesus in the new birth? Have, have you been given the spirit of God? Do you have access to the word of God? You see, all of our objections if we really believe what God says about the new births, start to uh, go away. And then it says, uh, th this is the text we just looked at, for we're his workmanship. Now, the new birth, uh, one of the sessions uh, Wednesday at camp, we talked about what the new birth is. The, the theme was made by God. So God not only created the world, but he made us in the new birth. And I don't know if you're familiar with George Whitfield, uh, but he was one of the greatest evangelists uh, the world has ever known uh, during the Great Awakening. And God used him, showed himself powerful as he preached in the fields to coal miners. And, and essentially he got kicked out of the Anglican church. And so he went out into the countryside preaching the gospel uh, sometimes 40,000 people listening to him without a microphone, flooding to hear him preach. There's some accounts that uh, when word was uh, in the town that Whitfield was there, someone wrote in their diary that as they got there, they looked and in every direction, north, south, east, and west, there was a cloud of dust as People on horses were riding to hear the gospel preached. And in seminary, I had to write a paper on Whitfield's life. And the theme that just rose to the top is that his preaching always had the central reality being the new birth. You see, he lived in a time when people thought they were saved because of baptism, church attendance, and outward actions. And in the message he had is that the new birth is the very hinge upon which each of our salvation turns. In a moment, we're going to think about sharing the gospel. Whether or not a person gets saved is not by your eloquence. It is through the power of the gospel, but 
God's the only one that can change a human heart. And that's comforting for those of us who've been called to carry that message. But he said the new birth is the hinge upon each of our salvation so that if someone goes to church, has good theology, has outward actions, but not the new birth, they will not enter the kingdom of God. He says, if all we have is a formal profession, Christ is as yet dead and vain to us. We are under the guilt of our sins and we are unacquainted with the true and thorough conversion. And so one of the questions I have for you this morning is, have you been born again? Has God done this work uh, within your heart? And if you have been, and you're thinking about being one who proclaims the gospel, you can never forget that it's the work of God that changes the human heart. Yes, through you and through uh, the word of God spoken through you, but it's his word, it's his gospel, and it's by his power. Matthew 7 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is how emphasis was put, uh, repeating two words uh, in, in the Greek language was putting emphasis on it. So not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, or I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm passionate, I'm loud, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And they probably did. That's the thing. God can work through his word coming out of a non-believer's mouth even. God can work powerfully in any way he wants. And then he, and then he says, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there was some sort of outward connection to God, but he never knew them personally. And uh, Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ had been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those that are eagerly waiting for him. Who's eagerly waiting for him? Those who know him, and he knows them. We just sang this song, I will wait for you. I will wait for you through the storm and through the night. The person who knows Christ, when things get tough, don't say, well, if that's what you're like, God, I'm leaving you. Rather, in the storm and in the night, we say, you are my hope. You are the hope of my soul. Our Hebrews 10.36 is similar. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's really similar. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who faith and persevere their souls. And so as we first look at the new birth and consider the effects of it, our eyes are open to Christ as being really our only hope. Uh, Paul says, I've been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. 
There's new affections that are given in the new birth. There's a a hopelessness in the world system begins at the new birth and hope in Christ begins at the new birth and there's a battle and there's a growing uh, uh, holiness that where you begin as a baby, but as you grow, this world starts to become dim in the eyes uh, of, of the believer. And so as we look at this text that Scott read, I want you to be amazed at what God has called you and I to. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And is Paul saying, I don't struggle with sin anymore? No, he's not saying that. But he is saying like what he said in Colossians when he says, my life is hidden with Christ in God, in heaven. The moment you trust Christ, your identity, your position in heaven is secured at the right hand of God. He says, therefore, put to death that which is earthly uh, in you. And so you, we really are a new creation. The old man is still alive, but he's dying, being put to death uh, by the Spirit. He says, all this is from God. The new birth is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The gospel is, is we're rebels to God. We need to be reconciled to God. But in Christ, we've been reconciled to him. And look at this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you realize That's what you've been given. You don't hire a pastor to share the gospel for you, but pastors are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You are given the ministry. I don't know your neighbors. I don't know your aunts and uncles and your brothers and sisters. You do. And there's one message in this world that is the best message. It's the only news that never gets old. And you've been given not the the duty in the sense where it's like, oh man, why did he have to do that? It's the privilege of all privileges. Every other religion says you need to be do this, this, and this and be good enough and get to get to heaven, which is just piling a burden on their shoulders, which No one can ever be good enough. And we have the message that says, you're not good enough. You're sinful. But God has done something. We're the ones with the good news. We're the ones to tell a world that's broken and seeking after life in money and in all sorts of sensuality. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Our message is not, you better be good enough. You better become perfect for God will save you. But our message is one where God doesn't count your sins against you. And here you have this word, this stewardship word, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So there's no way out of it as a Christian. 
Yes, it's true. God's gifted evangelist. Uh, God might not have for you an evangelistic ministry where you travel around the country, but he has called you to speak of the hope that you know in Christ to those around you. Here's the title you've been given. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Look at this. God making his appeal through us. So there's a king who's on the throne and he has messengers that don't carry their own words, but carry his words. And ambassadors herald truth. You see, we don't, we, we don't merely come and say, hey, I got something to think about. Have you ever thought about, you know, this aspect of Christianity? Uh, this is interesting. The Christian message is one where a king is on a throne and you've been sent and you're an ambassador and with the same authority from that throne, God making his appeal through us, God's own son died for sinners. Is that an appeal? And we're the ones to carry this message, proclaiming it. We're heralding. Hear ye, hear ye. The king has spoken. The king has done something. And you're called an ambassador. And so he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. People who know you, is that how they experience you? Is this someone that is urging that you also would be reconciled to God? Your co-workers, your family members, do, do they see someone who's calling them, imploring them to something? And I know that's convicting because it's not easy. And it's never meant to be easy because it's to be done in this new creation through the power of the Spirit, through the power of God's Word. So in First Peter, here's how Peter says it. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as holy. Whoop, I'm not very good at this yet. Here's the thing. Every time you have an opportunity to share Christ, there's Christ over here, and there's the people over here. There's what people think over here. Peter knew it. You see, we can either fear them thinking we're weird or them thinking, uh, you know, uh, what, what if I come off wrong? And there's a dilemma that's always standing before us. And the question is, is Christ going to be honored as holy? Or am I going to protect myself? That's what Peter's thinking about and then he says, always be prepared. That's what this sermon's about. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason or 
are for a reason for the hope that is in you. We're to be ready. We're to be prepared. I'm sorry. I'm not. This is why I don't do this. <laughs> okay. We're to be prepared to make a defense. And, and people ought to see this hope in us. You see that? He's assuming that when people come into contact with you, even though the Christians Peter's writing to are, are shortly going to be under the persecution of Nero and are on the run, he, he assumes that the aura that's being put out of them is they have hope. They have joy that isn't stolen from circumstances. There's a rootedness of something they know that I also need to know. And then he doesn't want us to be jerks. There's plenty of Christian jerks out there sharing the gospel, which don't represent Christ. Paul says, even people, people are sharing Christ, making Paul an enemy from the wrong heart. He says, I'm still thankful the gospel is going out, but he doesn't want us to uh, be jerks. He's, he says, here's how you do it. Do it with gentleness and respect. There's a respectful way. We share this hope. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There will never, I shouldn't say never, there's hardly ever, especially in a secular culture now, going to be the situation that feels right. <laughs> Very few people are ever going to come up to you and say, hey, lay out the gospel for me. I, I, I'd really appreciate if you'd love me enough to do that. And what I have found, because I feel the fear, it's going to be weird, uh, uh, there, I'll give you one example. There was, I, and I don't say this to make myself look good. I, I say this to help you understand the fear I have. Uh, there was a young man that worked on our pool pump here 10 years ago or so. And I just really enjoyed him. I got to, he, he worked on it like three days in a row. He was having problems with it. And it was the last day he finally figured out he's packing up his tools to go. And the whole time I've been waiting for an opportunity, like, Lord, give me a chance to share the gospel with them. And I kept chickening out, chickening out. And then finally I just said, okay, this might seem really weird to you. And I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And anyone who I love, I just got to share the best news in the world with and it would it be okay if I shared that with you and he kind of yeah sure and so then I just shared the gospel with him and in that circumstance I'm not saying it'll never happen but I've just never done that and been had someone respond and say no way if they believe you care about them and you love them and you sincerely want to share what God has done for you in Christ and, and, and then as he left, I just thought, man, all that fear. <laughs> and he, he didn't, I mean, who knows? He probably thought it was a little weird. But 
What's at stake? And then Acts 1, when they're asking, when is the kingdom going to be given to Israel? They're asking an end time question. He says, it's not for you to know. The times are seasons. The father is fixed by his own authority. But what does he say? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. That's, that's got to be your focus. This is what I've called you to. So here's what I do. When I, get, when I get an opportunity to share the gospel, I have this paradigm in my mind. I have my thumb being God. I got to memorize the word God on my thumb. Man, cross, resurrection, king. Those are like hooks for my brain. All right? And when I say God, here's what I'm assuming. You don't assume ever that when someone tells you they believe in God, that they believe in the God of the Bible. Because what we do is we make up the God of our own imagination, what we think God should be like. So uh, when we're sharing the gospel, we got to give them a little bit of context to who God is. Uh, God is holy. There's, not, there's no one or no thing else like him. I, I remember one preacher one time said, is God more like the microbe on your toilet or like the highest archangel in heaven? And he says, neither. He's set apart. He's holy. Both those things are created. God stands alone in all of his perfections, in all of his attributes. God is the creator and therefore the judge of the universe. God is a God of justice. He loves justice. He wants right to be done. And God is also a trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Allah, in the Islam faith, cannot be love. Only the Christian God can be eternally love. Why? Because who did Allah have to love for all eternity? If it's just him. Our God is a God of holiness. He's a God of justice. And he's a God of love. And so when I'll do my just if I'm in the scripture reading, doing devotions on my little notes, I kind of have these five categories. It's like, oh, that's a good God one. That talks about God's justice. So I'm always kind of loading, put, putting bullets in my gun in a sense uh, so that I'll have them or at least know where to go. So like Psalm 5.4 says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But, and even you get to see the opposite side, the love side of God with his wrath here. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. So David says, God hates wickedness. No one wicked can dwell in heaven with God. But yet David thinks he's going to dwell in heaven with God. How? 
through the abundance of your steadfast love. There's a fountain of love that somehow God's going to retain justice and give uh, and display his love at the same time. Another verse, Psalm 7, uh, 11 through 13, God is a righteous judge. That, that, that's who he is. And God feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The people you're talking to probably are viewing God, if they say there is a God, more like your grandpa, who's kind of a wise sage, but he's not one who's going to wet his bow. He's not one who's a judge that uh, we're going to stand before. So it's verses like this that are starting to help people understand the God of the Bible are the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, he, he's not like a man that has a temper that just all of a sudden blows up. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind, in the F5 tornado. When you think of God, think of the F5 tornado and a storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Or you think of 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So our God is this God who is love and yet he is a judge and he is wrathful and he does feel anger over sin. And most people can relate to that. If you give them an illustration and say, hey, if someone killed your whole family, went up before the judge and they said, what do you have to say for yourself? And the guy says, well, judge, I think you're a loving and forgiving judge. And so I think you ought to let me go. And the judge says, oh, you're right. I am loving and forgiving. Go. You're going to stand up in the courtroom and you're going to want to hang the judge because he's supposed to retain justice and righteousness. People understand that. People even want that when they're wronged. So after I help them understand who God is, then it's who is man? What does the Bible say about man? Man is sinful, accountable, and our sin is against an eternal God and deserves eternal punishment. It's a personal offense. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have to define sin for them. They're going to think of sin as murder, adultery, maybe swearing, things like that. That's all true. But how Paul defines sin here is anything that falls short of God's glory. You're created to glorify God with your life, to be an image bearer. So every time I eat a candy bar, I eat a meal and I don't pray. I just eat it rather than give glory to God. That's sin. Anytime I take praise for myself in my heart and, and, and just soak it and say, oh, that feels so good, and forget it's God who's given me any gift I have, that's sin. And so God defines sin as in, in this sense so that how many times do we sin a day, even as Christians? Hundreds? Thousands? How many of your thoughts are taken captive to Christ, that, that it would be glorifying to him. How many of your actions throughout a day are selfish? 
You see, they only think of sins as these big, big sins. They like to look at those sinners over there and I'm not a sinner over here. So defining sin, my favorite place to go, illustration is Job. Here's a man who loses all of his belongings and his children in one day. And then we we read in Job 1, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And I asked the person, you think you would sin? Think God did something wrong if all those circumstances went boom, 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 in one day? You, you and I would be struggling with the goodness of God. But amazingly, at least on the first day, Job did not sin. That's our charge God with wrong. That's incredible. But that same man in chapter 9 says this, I became afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. The best man on the face of the earth says, I know I'm not going to be held innocent before God. I shall be condemned. Why do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow, cleanse my hands with a lie, yet you'll plunge me into the pit. Even my own clothes abhor me. Job's saying, even if I take the best bath there's ever been and I put on a shirt, I soil the shirt. Why? For he is not a man. He knew what God was like. He is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come together to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hands on us both. Let him take the rod away from me and let dread of him not terrify me. Then I would speak without fear for I'm not so in myself. And so Job imagines, he says, God is off the charts glorious. If only there could be one to stand, put his hand on God and put his hand on me, a sinner. Then maybe I could come to God without terror and fear. God has done that in the person of Christ. Job was looking by faith for that one who would bear the gap. But I like sharing Job under the the finger of man because... My question is, is are you better than Job? Have you been worrying about facing God in your sin? Job was. Job was looking for someone to stand between them. And then sin deserves eternal punishment. Isaiah prophesies about hell in Isaiah 66 uh, 24 where he says for the worm for the worm shall die not and their fire shall not be quenched they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh or Jesus just simply teaches if your hand or foot causes you to sin cut it off or throw it away it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into the eternal fire now this is especially to the secular mind hell is just too much No way would I believe in a God that would send someone to hell for all eternity. And here's what, you can draw this on a napkin. This is is what we need to help them understand. God's glory is infinite. How high does God's glory and worth go? Infinitely high. So if our sin is a personal sin against infinite glory... 
than what is deserved for one sin against the infinite God. God's justice, God's glory, and God's love is at stake in how we think about hell. Because if God says, you can sin against me, the infinite God, and get a hundred years in purgatory, God's justice was thrown to the dirt, God's glory was thrown to the dirt, and God's love was thrown to the dirt. It'd be like the judge saying, yeah, let, let the murderer go. Because if you're going to have true love, you have to have true late, hate, hate. If you love life, you hate murder. If you love love this much, then you have to hate murder this much. There has to be the equal opposite. So it's not how many sins we've done. It's who have we sinned against? And so in sharing the gospel, you're, we're helping them see God is a holy, righteous God. And we've sinned against him. And that sin is personal. And I know hell's hard to think about, but the only reason why we think it seems unjust is because we struggle to understand his glory. And it's at point two where the, the person sometimes will look at you and say, well, you're a sinner. So I get what you're saying. We're all in trouble if God's holy and I'm not. But what about you? Well, I think I'm going to heaven. What? How can you think that if God is like this and man is like this? Well, let me show you. And here's where I want to bring out these points. In love, God sent his son, the God-man, to be our perfect substitute, bearing our punishment on the cross. Christ's work on the cross satisfies the just demands of a holy God for our sins and is the greatest manifestation of God's love uh, for sinners. Christ's life is the righteousness uh, from God that sinners need to be received, uh, need to be received by faith. Uh, I wrote that kind of confusing. The point is this, you're not getting into heaven. There is no evil that can dwell in heaven with God without perfect righteousness. And the way you get that perfect righteousness is by faith. You, you receive it by trusting in Christ. Your sins are taken away and, and uh, righteousness is given. Now, we don't have time to go through all these verses, so you can just write them down if you want. Romans 3.21 covers basically all these bases. A righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. It's a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 26 says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. See, the big question of the Bible is this. How can God give you forgiveness in his love and retain his justice? And the answer is, is on the cross. The devil could come to God and say, you're unjust in taking David to heaven. And on the day Jesus was put on the cross, God could have said to Satan, come here. You are questioning my justice. My perfect son is hanging on the cross bearing David's sin and Sam's sin. That's how I can bring him to heaven. 
and retain my justice. There will not be one sin in the universe that goes unpunished by a just and holy God. And that's why Christ is the central theme of the Bible. How can a sinful man be reconciled to a just God? It's in the person of the cross. Love and justice shine brightest on the cross. How serious does God take sin? His own son is dying under the wrath of the father for it. How much love does he have? In love, God sent his son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You're going to get the cross wrong if you don't talk about him being the substitute. The perfect one suffered for the unperfect one. The sins from the unperfect one were put on Jesus. Jesus' perfect righteousness is put on the sinner. To understand Christianity, you have to understand the substitutionary atonement. This is why you're saved by grace and not by works. Fourth, the resurrection. The resurrection was the confirmation receipt that God accepted payment for your sins, that death has been defeated and that you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. You see, if Jesus just would have said that it, he's going to lay down his life as a ransom for many, that he was going to go to the cross and bear the sins of the world, if he would have said that and died and remained dead, well, there's another quack. I guess he did a lot of miracles. <laughs> but if he didn't raise from the dead, how would you ever know? But Jesus said what he was going to go do, and then he did it, and then he came back from the dead, and the judgment for sin in the Garden of Eden was death, and now he's conquered death. When you're ordering something online, you want to make sure it's ordered. You wait for the confirmation receipt. That's what the resurrection is. Can God really forgive me? Did Jesus really raise from the dead as first fruits of those who are going to come after him? I don't know why it didn't have, oh, there is verses there. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one who gets between us and God. Don't think of the Father as a big meanie. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. But God's justice is against sin. And our only hope, uh, looking at a just God in our sin, is the mediator uh, in Christ. And then Acts 17 says, the times of ignorance... Uh, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If you ever wonder what Christians are supposed to be, are, are we just merely to have conversations? Or is God really making his appeal through us? Is God really commanding all people to repent? You see that? Because he has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man who's, whom he has appointed, and of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
See, God's not being unloving when, he, when, when his message to the world is repent. And the reason why in that verse is because there's a day coming where all men will stand before him. And those same men would cry out, why do you, why don't you warn us? Well, we're called to be the ones to bring the message. And then the last finger. So you can't have Jesus dead on the cross. You got to have the resurrection. And then what did he do? He ascended to the highest place, the right hand of God. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He will return uh, to the world in righteousness. Anyone not found in Christ will face the fierce wrath of the Lamb. Here we think of the verses. They'll cry out for stones to crush them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. And here's what I would always miss in my gospel presentation. I would go through it all and I'd get to resurrection and I'd say, there, he's resurrected, he's at the right hand of God, I'm done. But now the hardest part of sharing the gospel is this last part. Christ is coming again. And he's coming to judge. He's coming as a judge. The first time he came as a mediator. The second time he's coming as a judge. And you personally will make a choice. Will you risk it and go before the throne of God and say, I think I was good enough? Or will you turn to Christ who saves us from the wrath to come? You see, if Christ is coming and you're talking to a real person and you're not just doing a Sunday school lesson, then sharing the gospel must culminate with what are you going to do with Jesus? God has shown his love for you. They might say, yeah, but look at all the suffering in the world. I can't believe, I can't believe in a God that would let all this evil say, yeah, well, who suffered most in this world? Christ willingly took on flesh and came into this world and suffered more than anyone else because he loves you and because he cares for you. And so we already looked at Acts 17. You can read Psalm 2. It culminates with kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in his way. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Will you take refuge in him? And then Revelation 6.15. It can be frustrating for us as believers, this, the sanctification process. Maybe you're sitting here today saying, how long have I been a Christian and I hardly share the gospel with anybody? The reason why it can be frustrating is because when you start as a Christian, this says years of following Christ. The higher you get, the more years add up. When you first become a Christian, you know this much of your sin. It's like, man, if I could quit drinking and swearing, I'm pretty much going to be perfect. <laughs> and then, and that, and God's glory is about this high. But as you're in God's word, more sins of the heart, things like selfishness, things like that start to be exposed and God's glory gets greater. And it's, if we forget Christ, we can get more and more discouraged as that gap gets further apart. But when we remember the gospel, sometimes people start with the gospel and then go at it with their works. Here, here's what ends up happening though. If you'll remember Christ, the higher 
you get up, the older you get, yes, you see yourself as more sinful. Yes, you see God as more, more his glory as higher, but what's gotten bigger? Your Redeemer. On your deathbed, you should know more of your sin than you've ever known. Now, in actuality, you've been becoming more holy. But because more light from God's glory was coming into your life, more sin is being exposed. That's why some of our greatest heroes, their last words are, you know, forget me, forget my legacy, forget my life. This is just a sinner saved by grace. And so don't be discouraged. Look to Christ, but really confess and repent. If, if you feared man more than you've feared him, if you haven't been prepared, maybe, maybe you've had 20 years to prepare and you haven't really prepared yet for the opportunity. So this is what I'm doing. Sometimes you have an hour, sometimes you have two minutes. And I just want to show you with two minutes, now you can't get to all these verses, but you can say this. To my pool guy, I can say, you know, I just want to share with you the hope I have. You know, I believe God's revelation to us is in his word. And the Bible presents God as the creator of the universe. Therefore, he's the judge of the universe. And he's also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible says he's love. He's been eternally love forever. And God is just. And I'll say, do you think that's a good thing? Usually they say, yeah. And I say, well, yeah, let me tell you about man. The Bible says, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Our sin is personally against God. It's anything we do that's not glorifying to him. Man, if we have to stand before him and he's a perfect judge and this is who we are, and you know that's who you are, don't you? Don't you know you sin? What would, what, what, what would happen to you? Well, you want to know what God has done? God loved you so much. Whoever plugged the person's name in, he sent his only son, whosoever believes in him. That son was the perfect God-man. He was 100% or he was fully God and fully man. And he's the only one that could take your place in line before God's judgment seat. And that's what he did. The Bible says that when Jesus was on the cross, he bore the sins of uh, those who would trust in him. And God, because he's a perfect judge, judge Christ for my sins on the cross and for your sins if you'll have him. But when Jesus died three days later, he rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And the first time Jesus came, he came as the mediator, as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb to take the place of mankind. But he will come again next time he comes. He doesn't come looking weak. He doesn't come looking insignificant. He's going to break out of the sky. He comes like one riding on a war horse. He comes like a perfect judge. And there will be two groups of people on that day. There will be those who spent their whole life waiting for that day, saying, that's where my hope is. And then there will be people that will be so terrified on that day, they would want a mountain to fall on them. And because I love you and because I care for you and God gave me the job as an ambassador. This is God making his appeal through me to you. Will you be reconciled to God by faith in Christ? Will you come to him? So there's 
two minutes. I just have these five things and progression matters. If you start and just say, God loves you. He sent Jesus for you. That doesn't make sense to them. If I said, here's a free dose of chemotherapy and you don't know you have cancer, what kind of gift is that? You see, you have to understand your position and your need before you get to the Savior. The, the ground has to be tilled because that's when there can be repentance and faith in a person saying, that's what Jesus did? I need him. And so this is what Peter called these brand new Christians who are about to be persecuted. He told them, be prepared, be ready. And you yourself walk with Christ. Let them see the hope in you so that they might even come to you and say, tell me about this hope that you have in Christ. And my challenge is this. You have to break through. You have to break through the fear of man. You have to trust in the Holy Spirit's work. Your friend might think you're weird and might not want to hang out with you anymore. That, that might be true. But Peter says, honor Christ as holy. He died for that person. He loves that person. So you have to get over yourself. But once you do it, and God proves himself faithful, and then you do it again, and you do it again, what are you learning? You're learning that God didn't just throw us out there as ambassadors and say, figure it out and take your lumps. He promised that he would be with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's told us it's the word of life that we're preaching. The power is not in our persuasiveness, but in the gospel itself. Father, I pray that you would give us courage, not because we think so much of ourselves, but because you're the one that has equipped us. You're the ones that gave us our tool belt. You're the one that gave us the weapons of our warfare, prayer and the gospel. And Father, we can all confess that often we're unfaithful ambassadors. Often we see man as way too big and we see your glory as way too small. So Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, courage. Lord, I pray that you would help us think of verses inside these categories that we might be prepared uh, to share the gospel with what, whoever you might put in our life. Lord, I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.